All right, you may be seated, and I invite you to please open your Bible to Mark chapter 11 for a sermon from a fig tree, a sermon from a fig tree. Normally, people are preachers, but in Mark chapter 11, our Lord allows part of his creation to preach a message to us about the nature of true religion. One of the dominant themes in the book of Mark has been the nature of true religion as Jesus has confronted the distorted religion of his own people, of the nation of Israel, and all of the traditions and man-made elements and uh, ways that their religion had moved away from God's original intention in making a covenant with the people of Israel, and it's been distorted. And it's so distorted that as the story is unfolding in Mark, they're missing the primary point of their religion, which is a vibrant and meaningful relationship with God, lost in the garden, restored by the sacrifice and love and glory of God himself in sending his son to be forgiveness of sins. The Jewish people are blind to it. Jesus' own disciples are partially blind to it, not fully receiving the reality that the one who is greater than the temple has arrived. And so Jesus, as he enters into the final week of his life, is going to give us a series of of sermonettes, of brief uh, glimpses into spiritual truth to show us uh, that he is the center of true religion, that he is God of very God, that God's plan in bringing a Messiah to his people that will be the savior of the entire world uh, is what's before us. And the great danger for us is the same danger for them, that we might miss it. And so I don't want you to miss it. I want you to carefully hear a sermon preached by a tree, a fig tree in Palestine, just a few stadia outside of Jerusalem, a tree that is dead because Jesus killed it but a tree that can speak life to those who understand how important it is to hold on to true religion and guard against false religion. Mark 11, verse 1. I'm sorry, Mark 11, verse 11. uh, Through the end of the fig tree section here. So let's pick up in verse 11. That's the verse we looked at last week. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Now our text, starting in verse 12. Now, on the next day, when he had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? 
but you've made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. This is the very word of the living God. Trent Russell, famous atheist, in his well-known essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, cited this narrative among many others as one of his reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. He said this incident displays Jesus as a man who expressed vindictive fury on an innocent plant. It was a moment where, in Russell's mind, the Savior was showing behavior that was not becoming of a righteous man, let alone the Son of God. He perceived this account to be an example of Jesus uh, being vindictive and irrational because the text itself says it wasn't fig season. So why would he expect to find figs on a tree? And why would he blame the tree? In this scenario, it's sort of the equivalent of somebody who's mad coming home from work because they're their ornery boss and they kick the dog. It's not the dog's fault. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Even Christian commentators get confused sometimes in this story because it's a remarkable incident. It's a unique incident. Think of all of Jesus' miracles. Pick any of them. They're all miracles that give life, that save and rescue. They're miracles that are healing and restorative and joy-giving. This is the only miracle that's an act of destruction. And so some are, are put off by it. And they're not listening to the message that Mark is bringing, criticizing Jesus for killing a tree rather than using his power to bring forth figs out of season, which he could have done, right? I mean, if Jesus wanted to, he could have made one of the glorious, most glorious manifestations of God's common grace in just creating ex nihilo a fig newton, fig newton. Right? Unless you're against fig newtons, then I can't help you. Taste and see that the fig newton is good. And so Jesus intentionally doesn't do that. Instead, he curses and kills this tree. Rather than a miracle that gives life, he brings destruction and death. But these criticisms, both the atheist criticism and the the critic's kind of account of this story, don't listen to the text. One of the points of this passage is actually that we ought to listen. It's something that Mark has been emphasizing from the start with his miracles pertaining to spiritual sight and spiritual uh, deafness, and that continues in this passage. Look at verse 14 with its emphasis on, and his disciples were listening. And verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes, Jesus' opponents, heard this. 
the whole crowd, likewise in verse 18, was astonished at his teaching. You see, Jesus has something to show us here. And this isn't just an ordinary miracle uh, that's motivated by the hunger and the humanity of our Lord. Listening to the message that Mark is bringing rather than providing selective hearing and modern, modern prejudice uh, will help us to not miss the point entirely. And so like the disciples and even like Jesus' opponents, we need to hear what Jesus is saying. And it's a message from a fig tree. Remember what's happened so far. Jesus just entered triumphantly and in fulfillment of ancient prophecy He showed himself to be the long-expected son of David. That's the the paragraph that comes before where Jesus enters in the triumphant moment into the city on on a colt, a donkey. And on that humble donkey, he enters the holy city showing his kingship is an unconventional one and not according to the worldly expectations or contemporary religious opinions that had arisen. It was... Sunset the night before that we left Jesus in verse 11, surveying the temple, looking all around, assessing it, analyzing it. The intended object of the rituals of this temple, the center of her worship, its creator and sustainer, standing in the midst of the temple that was built. This is the third temple, Solomon's Zerubbabel and now Herod's massive temple complex. All of them supposedly a tribute to Yahweh, a tribute to the covenant God of Israel, a place where heaven touches earth on Mount Zion, a place where sinful mankind can renew and cultivate its covenant with God and relationship with Him through sacrifice and obedience and the terms of the law, all of it wrapped up in the building of this magnificent place. And here the Lord himself is now in the temple, apparently alone in verse 11, looking around, analyzing and assessing. And all the worshipers are missing the object of all the rituals, of all the worship, of all the sacrifice, because they're missing the creator and sustainer who stands in her midst. The focal point of the religious life of the nation of Israel has entered into the holy city But the fanfare has died out. Religious expectations are unmet. And Jesus is about to declare that this temple will no longer suffice. Her worshipers are too corrupt to see reality. Too spiritually blind to observe and realize that God is with them, among them. And Mark intends his readers to not miss the parable and the sermon that Jesus builds as he curses an unfruitful fig tree and exposes the judgment of God on the unfruitful temple. But with the great danger for us being to restrict this message entirely to the ancient people of first century Judaism and not to examine the fruitfulness and reality, the trappings and dangers of our own religious life and customs. The eve of this day, the day that Jesus encountered this tree and enacted this parable, 
when author James Edwards says, this is the first of Mark's clues that the temple is not the habitation of God's Son. Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but he is veiled and unrecognized. Even when he stands at the center of Israel's faith, he stands alone. And so Jesus begins in verse 12, that two-mile journey from where he's staying, likely at Lazarus' house with Mary and, and Martha and resurrected Lazarus eating a whole new breakfast is new when you've gone to the grave and back again. And so uh, apparently, I, I don't know, they skipped breakfast that day or Jesus left before everybody else got up. But I think this is underlining uh, one religious principle that I adhere to, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You can take your intermittent fasting and keep it to yourself. Intermittent fasting, you know, is skipping breakfast. It's not that complicated. Jesus doesn't do it. Instead, he's hungry. Uh, Another one of the countless times in the Gospels where we're reminded of the true humanity of Jesus. He weeps. He hungers. He grows tired and weary Uh, He is truly a man in his human nature like us, and that's always a point of sympathy for us as believers. Jesus' humanity displayed always reminds us that Jesus understands us. He understands our struggle. He understands our limitations. He understands because he's fully man and fully God, and he's fully hungry. And so... Uh, In the morning, he moves towards Jerusalem with his disciples. And the setup in verse 13 is that he sees this fig tree in a distance in leaf. And we live in an environment where you probably have seen a fig tree. Fig trees aren't uncommon in people's backyards in California or throughout the American West. Uh, There's fig trees all over the place. You've seen them. They're often not very tall, uh, maybe the size of a person. They're very leafy. The green of their leaves is, is verdant and vibrant, and they're a very noticeable kind of plant covered with figs uh, when they're in season. When they're not in season, because this is likely around April or springtime because it's Passover time in Israel. They have something on them that common people, according to the book of Hosea and a few other spots in the minor prophets, would eat called pagim in Hebrew. It was a uh, it was the little beginning fig. And for the poor, uh, for those who were hungry, for the traveler, sometimes they would go to a fig tree, uh, not expecting figs out of season, but expecting to find uh, the kind of beginning fruits. And uh, I think that, that that's probably one way to kind of explain why Mark notes that, uh, that this not fig season, uh, because it wasn't irrational or illogical for Jesus to go find a fig. Uh, But his hunger isn't a fiction, nor is his ultimate purpose in going to this fig tree. So Jesus, in his omniscience, knew very well that this fig tree would not provide him the Newtons for which he longed. It would provide an object lesson. And so that's the big purpose of Jesus, going to this tree. He finds it to be covered in leaves, covered in apparent growth in apparent life, but totally fruitless. And so he pronounces a curse on the tree in verse 14. He said to it, may no one 
ever eat of you again. In Matthew 21, there's very few differences. This is an account only provided for us by Matthew and by Mark. You have a very kind of similar story that goes on with the, the fig tree. And in Matthew's account, it's, it's the same thing. There's just some minor and, I think, insignificant differences. But Jesus accompanies that fig tree cursing with a, with a parable, a story about a fig tree. And, and so that's one of those, those differences that just remind us of the historical accuracy of Jesus, um, of the gospel writers. In Matthew's account, uh, he's uh, on his way outside of the city. There's a lone fig tree by the road, nothing on it except leaves only. And Jesus says, similarly, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And so it's a bit of a dual curse, the exposing of the fig tree's fruitlessness and the promise that this tree would never uh, bear fruit again. In Matthew's account, Matthew apparently remembers seeing the tree start to wither immediately, which is, I think, kind of a cool feature where the other disciples were more listening to Jesus. Matthew took a second glance at that tree and started to see maybe a leaf fall off. But on the way back is when they'll find this tree completely decimated by the judgment of God. And so this is the first half of the fig tree incident. The second half comes after the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, which most Bible uh, students understand to be the second cleansing of the temple because in other accounts it happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So there is a likelihood that Jesus cleansed the temple, braiding a whip, driving out the money changers two different times in his ministry, once at the beginning and again at the end. Uh, this is the second time, and Mark intentionally sandwiches this account between the fig tree story. And so it helps us to understand the, the sermon by the fig tree to know that the apparent f- fruitfulness of the tree with all its leaves is the first mark, the bread on the sandwich, and then the death of the tree and Jesus' fulfillment of judgment on this tree is the bottom half of that sandwich. And the middle, remember in these Mark and stories that are built like this, is always where the point of emphasis is. And so let's look at the backside of it one more time. Uh, Verse 20, verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. This was their custom during Passion Week to stay in Bethany rather than stay in the crowded city of Jerusalem and to just walk in in the morning for Jesus's ministry among the people. Verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree uh, withered from the roots up and Peter in astonishment says, "Uh, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. I'm going to reserve verses 22 to 26 for next week, which is a a small sermon Jesus gives that's in line with this teaching in order to show you that I think the emphasis that Mark wants to draw your eye towards, the thing that the disciples listen to and the thing that the chief priests and the scribes listen to, is the central point of Jesus in his his, uh, encounter 
and his confrontation with those who are driving temple worship. And so if the fig tree is this surrounding sandwich in Mark's focus, then verses 15 to 18 are the meat and the substance to pay attention to it. In it, I think we find two uh, lessons and, uh, about religion. Uh, and religion, as you know, is a, a neutral word. Religion could be false religion. Religion could be Christianity. Some Christians use the word religion as a bad word. Like, I don't believe in religion. I have a relationship with Jesus. And I think I know what they mean by that. But religion, for most of, of Christian history, can be used as a positive or negative term. I'm just using it really in both ways here because I think that there's two things we need to learn from this account, the Sermon on the Fig Tree, about uh, real religion. One is a warning and one is a, uh, a real reminder. So the warning is, there's a warning here against fruitless uh, and formal worship. A warning against fruitless and formal worship. That's the, the parable of the fig tree. I think the primary takeaway needs to be a warning against fruitless and formal kind of worship. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, the center of their religious life and faith. And he enters the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Well, I don't know that you've been to Herod's temple or to one of those like VR reenactments of it. But you need to understand what it was Jesus entered into. Because when you hear Jesus went in the temple, you don't need to be thinking like he stormed into the Holy of Holies. Or that the work that Jesus did shut down the whole operation. This was probably a localized event. The way it's described here, and the reason I know that, I think, is the way it's described, but also because you need to understand something about this third temple. It was at this point in history under construction. It had been being built by Herod for about a decade, a little longer. And it was a massive, massive construction project. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the focus goes again to the temple. And we're talking about Herod's temple, the third temple, because the temple's been destroyed twice already. Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel's temple turned to Rubbabel and Zerubbabel. You know that song. Anyway, uh, still under construction and uh, for about 10 years or so. The temple wasn't just a building. It was this massive complex. You've been to SoFi Stadium? The new and beautiful SoFi Stadium, it's kind of the American version of that. It's, it's not religious, except, I mean, for some people it is. So there's an outer court. There's, there's all the parking lots that surround it. There's, there's these you know, fountains as you walk up to SoFi, and then you go kind of, there's a lot you do before you actually get into the field. In a similar way, the temple was this massive, massive complex that consisted of several different parts. And in Herod's third temple, still under construction, there's four basic portions of the temple, and all of them were immense. All of them were grand. All of them were impressive. And the largest and first area that you would have entered into was called the Court of the Gentiles. 
This is an open-air kind of uh, marketplace, quadrilateral, come on, say, do you say that word? Uh, it, it's, that, it's that kind of outside area, and it was the size of five football fields. So it's huge, uh, and uh, 325 yards wide, 500 yards long. That's bigger than five football fields, so it's about 35 acres. I mean, a massive place with these porticos supported by rows of columns. And Josephus, writing later, before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, tries to give people a perspective. He wrote for a very wide and distance audience of just how big this thing was. So uh, he actually gives an illustration um, of how big it was. Uh, Will you three guys stand up? Yeah, you three guys. Yeah, you three. Yeah, one, two, three. Yep, yeah, mm-hmm. you got it. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Go ahead and stand up. Come here. Come here. This is Josephus, a Jewish historian. Will you now, the three of you, hold hands and make a circle and get as big as you can? Wider, 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 wide as you can. Yeah, that, Josephus says, is how big the columns were. You can sit down. Did somebody take a picture? Did you get a picture? Good. Good. That's good. So he got a picture of that. Um, no, that's literally the words of Josephus. He says uh, three grown men with arms joined uh, would surround one of these things at the base. And there was, there was dozens of these massive columns, 30 feet high, uh, crowned with these capitals around them and, and ornate. The ceilings of these porticos would have had wood carvings and gold inlay. In the area around that massive portico is the place where merchants were selling sheep and doves, uh, other elements needful for sacrifices. It was hard to travel uh, to you know, bring you know, the Bessie the cow along. And so uh, instead, you could sell Bessie at home, bring some money, buy a cow there, buy a sheep there, buy a dove there. You also couldn't use currency in the temple that had an image on it because they took it to be a violation of the second commandment. And so they had to change their coins uh, for something called a Tyrrhenian shekel. It was a pure metal coin that had no image on it, so they weren't violating uh, their understanding of the law. So there's a lot going on in the court of the Gentiles that was important to keep up worship. And there was obviously some financial gain that was inappropriate. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have called them robbers. But the problem that Jesus identifies with what's going on here is not solely one of financial impropriety. Otherwise, he wouldn't have ripped out those who were buying. He would have thrown out those who were selling And so both sides are attacked in Jesus' indictment of what's going on in the temple. Not just those who are trying to make an inappropriate profit on the exchange of goods and services in the temple. Jesus is indicting the entirety of what's going on in this Gentile court. It would have been this massive scale, hundreds of merchants, 
a huge quantity of animals being sold. Uh, the day after day, the, the slaughtering that would go on for these sacrificial animals. Uh, again, Josephus, to give you kind of a, a scope of this thing, uh, writing in AD 66, obviously, you know, some decades later. In that year, AD 66, the temple was completed. It was like kind of the finishing touches were being made. There were 255,600 lambs sacrificed for Passover on, in AD 66. So we're talking about a massive industrial kind of complex. And this is the outer court where Jesus would have done this cleansing. Understand that this isn't the entirety of the temple. Within that was the court of the women, a place where only Israelite women could go. And within that would have been another smaller court called the court of the Israelites. And that was only for uh, circumcised Jewish males. And within that would have been the temple proper, the holy of holies, uh, a freestanding temple complex, the one that you think of when you think of the the tabernacle and its more permanent replacement in the temple. That was uh, about a hundred yards long and a hundred wide, commanding the center of all of it. And it had a wall that separated it from the court of the Gentiles. And on that wall was written in Greek and Latin and Aramaic, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. This is a massive uh, edifice. This is a huge complex. And Jesus's protest would have occurred in one of the portions where he you know, found this, this place of offense. But understand that what Jesus is doing is not just saying the prices aren't right. Jesus isn't upset about inflation or overcharge primarily and only. Jesus is irate because of the same reason he curses the fig tree. What he finds when he comes to the temple is a kind of religion that is all leaves and no fruit. They were doing the practices in some form that they had been given from God, but it no longer had the fruitfulness and reality that was supposed to accompany true worship. This has always been the case when the prophets indict the people of Israel. The fig tree was pretentious because it looked fruitful, it looked life-giving, it looked like it was going to provide the purpose for which it was made. The temple was equally or more so pretentious, and it serves as a counterpoint in Jesus's enacted parable in the Sermon of the Fig Tree, where it's saying that there's a lot of activity in the temple, a lot of liveliness, a lot of foot traffic, a lot of money being exchanged, a lot of sacrifice being made. But the fundamental problem isn't the price point. It's not that Jesus is against capitalism or something stupid like that. The idea behind Jesus's attack on the system is that all these sacrifices and all these exchanges are being made and all this hustle and bustle of apparent religious activity. And meanwhile, the priests are plotting to put to death the very one whom the offering were intended to be for. 
There's plenty of leaves in false religion, but there's no real fruit. Bustling with activity and uh, people and actions and outward elements and tremendous apparent success, this religious complex was bereft of reality because reality was standing among them. He'd been healing the sick for years. He'd been raising the dead for years. And now as he enters in onto Mount Zion, the place where heaven touches earth, it's just another Passover, another day as normal. And the plot is thick to kill Jesus. And so this place to Jesus looks like a whole bunch of leaves because it's missing him at its center. Jesus' prophetic task and prophetic exposure of this system is a way where Jesus is saying that this whole thing is over. It's going to be done for because Jesus will take its place. That's the object lesson that Jesus is trying to press on them. And the danger for us in seeing this is to leave it here and not bring it here. Because there's lots of activity and formalism and opportunities to do stuff at a wonderful, great church like ours. But there's also a lot of dead, spiritually empty people that come to this place and think, because there's a lot going on here, they're right with God. And that would be a very dangerous place to find yourself. I mean, the temple wasn't bad. I mean, God intended there to be a temple. And the gathering of God's people for worship is certainly God's will. But whenever there's false religion in the mix, whenever there's religious activity without religious reality, when there's fruitlessness and formality, and I'm not even telling you that formality in and of itself is bad. Look at how formal my tie is. It's super formal. I'm not against formality. It keeps my neck warm. It's mistaking those external realities for the internal necessity of a heart made right with God. That's the danger, and that's always been the prophet's message. And so Jesus begins with a warning against fruitlessness, uh, exposing the danger of formality. They were concerned about making sure they were getting spotless animals in order for Passover. Instead, the cries of Hosanna as Messiah entered should never have drawn silence. Their leaders were making sure the industry was still going. They were missing that the center and object of all their worship was among them. That's what's so significant about this cleansing of the temple. Because Jesus didn't come to clean it or to reform it or to make it better. Jesus came 
to show that this whole system's going to get torn down and he's going to take its place. You understand that? That's what's happening here. The leafy fig tree, one author says, with all its promise of fruit, is as deceptive as the temple, which despite its religious commerce and activity is really an outlaw's hideout, verse 17. And the curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. And so, having been warned about the formality and fruitlessness of false religion, consider now uh, this next section where we see that true religion needs to be reverent and purposeful. Reverent and purposeful. So Jesus stops these money changers. He whips and flips and does all these things and obstructs basically the movement of their goods, at least for this one morning. And in verse 17, he begins to immediately teach them and say to them, and listen to what he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Wow. A house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. This is what's going to activate the chief priests and the scribes. Their plot to kill Jesus thickens in verse 18. But a focus on what Jesus is saying, and not just what Jesus is saying, but where Jesus is saying this is so important. You see, the fig trees were always a symbol of fruitfulness in Israel. Uh, think about Jeremiah 8.13. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. Uh, Jesus gave a parable about a fig tree in Luke 13. Uh, Isaiah 20 talks about fig trees. And, and, and there's lots of dramatic kind of enactments that prophets do. Jesus in this dramatic enactment is cursed the fig tree and now cleaning the temple or rather than cleaning um, pronouncing judgment on the temple just like he did the fig tree, says that despite all the apparent activity going on here, it's actually a place for bad guys to hide. That's what this religion has become. And religious is dangerous when it lacks the reverence, and reverence is just an awareness of the reality of God. That's what reverence is. Reverence isn't you not smiling. Reverence isn't Martin Lloyd-Jones wearing a robe. Reverence isn't, that, it's not, none of that is reverence. Reverence is Godward, and it's often invisible. And Jesus is concerned that this temple lacks reverence because it lacks an awareness of who God is. And so this religion has gotten dangerous because the temples become a place that's supposed to be about the reverent worship of God, but instead has become a hideout for bad guys, a robber's den. And in all the religious trappings and formalism, you now have leaders who are going against the very purpose of God, which is the salvation of mankind and his own glory. You see, this indictment that Jesus makes is made in a particular place. He says this in the court of the Gentiles. That's so significant because it had been a place that had been the restricting of worship rather than the permitting and invitation of worship. 
That's why the quotation of this verse is so significant. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That reference to house of prayer for all nations is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. It speaks of the extension and reach of God's salvation to those who have been excluded from it. That chapter in Isaiah lists foreigners and eunuchs and exiles and Gentiles all as the recipients of the blessing of worshiping the one true God. And it's that passage that Jesus quotes from after whipping and flipping the people in the temple who are stopping true worship and are not acknowledging the true Messiah. And in doing that, in the court of the Gentiles, Jesus is showing them that their nationalistic expectations about the Messiah being for Jewish Uh, the, the Jewish nations lifting up for the domination of Rome, for a kind of expansion of their borders, was not the intention of the Messiah in the Torah and in the ministry of the prophets. The temple and the covenant were never to be exclusively for Israel, but were intended to preach to all nations. The temple was not Israel's private property, the temple, according to Isaiah 56, verse 6, was for all who love the name of Yahweh may worship him. And Isaiah 56, verse 8, a place where God will gather still others. And Israel had flipped this around to be a kind of inward-facing religion that was just for them and their own expansion. Their persecution had become their focus and their domination of their persecutors had become their goal. Instead, God had always intended his people to radiate and reflect his glory and image to the nations, that they would be like a magnet to draw people to the worship of the one true God. And so when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, that's reverence. And for all the nations, that's purpose. Because the nature of worship is, by very definition, expansive. God wants his name to be shown to be great to all of his creation. And Israel was missing their true purpose in receiving a Messiah who was not just for the covenant people of God, but was to rescue the nations and fulfill God's word to Abraham that his people would be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. And so we look at this passage, having been taught about having been warned about the nature of false religion and, and hopefully provoked towards the danger, the, the, the need for right and heartfelt religion. 